Well, if you have come here expecting to see Todd start a session, the segment on Romans, you're going to be a little disappointed. Todd uh, contacted a group of us uh, late last week that he needed to be in Dallas this last week. And so he asked, uh, there was probably six or eight of us on the email, if one of us would be available to teach this Sunday. Now, Todd will be back next week, so it will start then. But there's kind of an interesting story that happened in the process. So I get this email, as did a group of other men, and started praying, Lord, do you want me to teach this Sunday? And the next morning, I woke up early in the morning. I mean, really early, with all these thoughts flowing through my mind of things that could be part of a sermon. And so I kind of figured out that if you're praying about if you should give a sermon, and start got, God starts giving you all the thoughts about one, odds are that he wants you to do it. And if that wasn't clear enough, then through the next few days, I started noticing person after person responding to the email. Oh, we're out of town. Oh, we already have plans. Oh, we won't be there. And it's kind of like Brian and I were about the last two. There's a couple <laughs> other possibilities. but And I thought about making Brian kind of be a one-man show of do... <laughs> Worship and communion and the sermon and stand up here with a banjo and symbols between his knees. And... But I decided it wouldn't be best for him, and God had clearly led me into this. And so uh, I kind of kept my topic a secret. Uh, we're going to be talking about evangelism. And I kept it a secret because in all my years of ministry, as I've gone to conferences, there's always an evangelism con uh, workshop, and it's always in a really small room because no one wants to go to it. And I knew this would be kind of a light Sunday anyway. And if you knew I was talking about evangelism, there might just be my family and a few others that would come. So let me tell you where, what my process is on how I came to where I am now. Uh, I work for the Navigators. It's a Christian organization. And I do a ministry reaching out to internationals. And about 15 years ago, my national responsibilities started increasing and so it started getting harder and harder for me to actually be on campus with the students. And probably about five years ago, I gave in to, I finally accepted what God was doing, that God had called me to help develop and lead the staff as they ministered to the internationals. And he wasn't, at that point, wanting me to be on campus. And I was fine with that. I was doing what God wanted. But there was a side effect that I didn't notice until quite a while later, and that was I had no friends who didn't believe. So I work for an organization, and literally in the job description is a requirement to have faith in Christ. It's not an option. I go to Melanie Park Church, and I'm active here. Most everyone I know believes here. I have a family that all believes. I started looking around, and I'm just not in a position to naturally be among non-Christians anywhere. And then a couple different times over the, those years, I was in some meeting, and somebody said, when was the last time you shared the gospel? And I started thinking about it, and I couldn't remember. And it's kind of like, this, this seems weird. I am a full-time paid Christian worker giving myself to the gospel, and I'm not sharing it with anybody. All right, this is not right. And so as I started thinking about that, my heart response was kind of twofold. One, I was very convicted about it, but I was also just kind of ashamed about it. I knew this isn't what God wanted for me, and it's not what I wanted for me. And so I started slowly working it, 
uh, changing a couple of things. Uh, it helped that God kept pushing that little button on me and kept putting some pressure on. But I started trying to be more intentional with my neighbors. And just if they're out, to try to go say hi to them and talk to them. Um, I also tried to find a place and did where I could be around some non-Christians. I don't know if any of you have heard of the sport called pickleball. Uh, I have a friend that over probably the last 10 years uh, lives in a different state. He started teaching me how to play, and I played a little bit here and there. But I realized that was a place I could go and be among people doing something we both enjoy, and there are people that not, don't believe there. And so I could finally get into a natural place to relate to non-believers. And then lastly, just wanting to kind of challenge my own heart, I pulled out a book that I'd read a year, number of years ago. The book is called The Insider by uh, Jim Peterson and Mike Shamey. And I knew it would challenge my heart and just kind of restart that fire in there on wanting to reach out to the people around me. And so just to be fully open, a lot of the thoughts I'm sharing today come from that book. But the neat part is I see them strongly in Scripture. And so we're going to be looking at Scripture on all these things. So I want to share with you some of the things God's been doing in my life and some of the convictions He's been giving me. You know, I don't want you to think I'm an expert. Just because I've been around this and I've even taught workshops and sessions on it, I'm still struggling with it. It's still hard for me. It's not a natural thing. My hope for today is that as we go through this and I give you some steps towards the end that might be some practical things, that you can actually leave with the idea of, hey, I think I can do that. I also want to let you know that it may be a little different in terms of sermon. I'm uh, a teacher. Uh, my degree is in education. And I like to teach much more than this. If I had my way, we'd all be sitting around tables in a big open room and I'd be walking around and we'd have a lot of discussion going on. And so I'm going to make it a little more interactive than some sermons you've been around. Um, there will be tests. I, I am a teacher. And there will be homework. So just know now that's where we're going to be going. So now that we kind of have the groundwork laid, uh, let's go in and get started. Uh, as I started thinking about evangelism, I made some assumptions. And so before I get too far into this, I want to kind of see if my assumptions were right. And so we are starting with a test. And this is a real test. It's not one that you can skip out on. You're going to raise hands, and I really want you to raise hands. And so what I'm going to do is I have three different statements I'm going to say, one at a time. And if that statement is true about you, raise your hand. Not hard to do. Uh, so first statement, I'm regularly engaging in ongoing spiritual conversations with people who don't believe. Awesome. That's great. I love to see that. Okay, second statement. I should probably do more in sharing my faith, but I really don't know how or where to start. Okay, I knew there'd be some people like that. Glad you're here. Hope you can leave with something. I know what to do, but for some reason, I just don't. I'm there with you. And so we all kind of have misconceptions and assumptions. Oh, Tell you what, don't you hate it when a teacher doesn't give you a grade? You pass the test, everybody gets 100 on me. So before we go too far, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this a little closer. Father, I ask that uh, you would be with us this morning, that your word would be heard, 
and your word would move in our hearts. Help us to follow you, not to follow trends or assumptions or expectations or misconceptions, but to truly follow you. Uh, speak to our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I mentioned expectations, and you can see I titled it The Great uh, Misconception. I probably am being overly dramatic in thinking this is the great misconception. There's other things like Jesus is not God, the Bible's not true, that are probably greater misconceptions. But the idea of misconception, I think, is important here. Because in my experience, there's a lot of misconceptions about what evangelism is and how we should approach it. I've bought into many of them. And um, I think, like most things, a misconception is just a truth somewhat taken out of context. Now, it's been a long belief of mine that truth by itself can be heresy. Now, that sounds kind of funny, but if you take any one truth of the Scripture... Pull it out, separate it from all the rest of Scripture, it can lead to heresy. It can take you down a wrong path. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's take the truth that God provides. If we take that and pull it away from the rest of Scripture, if God provides, hey, I don't have to work anymore. God's going to provide, right? Oh, and you know what else? I can go and buy whatever I want because God's going to provide. And so when we take one scripture and separate it from the rest, it can lead to some wrong places. That's why in the church that we consistently try to, that's why we preach through books of the Bible, so that all those verses stay in their context. Well, in evangelism, I think the same thing is true. I think there's some misconceptions that are made that lead us to some wrong places. Uh, I'm going to pick on three of them. So the first misconception is, it's all up to me. Now this, the person who goes with this is bold, confrontational, uh, maybe even offensive. They are determined to make you believe. And in their mind, it's just a matter of questions and answers. That if I give you all the right questions, I mean all the right answers to your questions, if I bring out all the right apologetics, Logically, you have nothing to do but believe. And so they will argue you into the kingdom somehow. Well, and also with that is the assumption that it's their responsibility to tell everybody. That if I have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and I don't, what if I'm the only chance they have? Am I sending that person to hell because they didn't get to hear because I didn't get to say? It's all about me, right? It's all up to me. Well, I think you can see how there's some truth in that, but it very much takes us down a wrong path when you take it to the extremes like that. So the second misconception is it's all up to God. This is the person who lives the life but without any words. That God just wants us to live a good life. That's enough. Be nice. Wait for people to ask you something that our lives are enough of a testimony. And if someone asks, you can just take them to church, and they'll get all the right answers there. That I don't really ever need to say anything to anyone. You know, God's going to take care of it all. I don't need to say anything. I don't need to do anything. Just live my good life and leave it all up to God. Again, we can see how this one truth 
leads us astray. Now, there's a third one that I've run on to some. I don't get it much, but I have seen it. Evangelism is all up to someone with the spiritual gift of evangelism. So many of us know people with the gift of evangelism. Um, I personally know several. And they just so naturally share with everyone around them. And if I had this thought that it was only up to them, it's kind of like, great, go, guy, you get after it. I don't have to. I'll let those people all do it and leave me out of that thing. And so, again, that's just a misconception. Now, I think all of us lean a little bit towards one of these. And so, little assignment for you. In your bulletin, you'll see a blank. It says, I lean towards... I'm not saying you're wholly committed all the way in on even one of them, but write, take a second and think and write down. Of those three, which one do you kind of lean towards a little more? So if you wrote down, evangelism is all up to me, beside that, write Ephesians 2, verse 4. Let me read that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. God's doing the work. It's not all up to me. Now, if you wrote down, it's all up to God, write down Romans 10, uh, verses 14 and 15. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how, they, how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. We do need to preach. We do need to be talking about the gospel with people around us. And lastly, if you think it's all up to the evangelism, I think that's just kind of a funny idea. Because none of us come into this thinking, well, you know, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't need to show mercy to anyone. I don't have the gift of service, so I don't need to serve anyone. I don't have the gift of administration, so I don't have to organize anything. We don't do that, so why would we put that applied here? And so really what that is, what it comes down to, is just an argument that sounds really spiritual, uh, but isn't. And so what I want to do, I want to take a look at the Scriptures a little bit, some pictures and Scriptures. And I found some interesting things as I started looking at these. We're going to start in Colossians. So if you'll turn to Colossians 1. Sorry, allergies are a little getting to me. Verses 28 and 29 is where we'll start. And this is Paul talking as he writes to the Colossians. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. 
Okay, keep that in mind. Jump over to uh, chapter 4. Going to read verses 2 through 4. Devote yourself to prayer, to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way in which I ought to speak. And so we see as Paul talks about sharing the gospel, he has some clear ideas of what it means to him and clearly ask some strong things in his prayer. He's praying for doors to be open. He's praying that he can speak and speak clearly. He's talking about proclaiming, admonishing. These are strong words. There's a sense where it's like he's looking for an audience to speak to and that he would speak to them well when he gets it. But look at the next verses. Colossians 4, now verses 5 and 6. Paul is talking to the people there in the church. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be, I mean, always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Now that's a different flavor, it seems like. Conduct yourselves with wisdom, make most of opportunities. You know, he didn't admonish them. He didn't tell them to admonish the people around him. He didn't expect them to be as bold as he was. You know, he talks about his speech seasoned with salt. You know, salt is interesting. It makes you thirsty. It creates a desire. You know, anyone who's eaten a potato chip knows that. You want more. And that's what our speech should be like. It should make people want more truth. It should draw them in. You know, one of the misconceptions was the guy who never spoke. It's very clear. Making the most of opportunity, let your speech be. Knowing how to respond. There is interaction. There are words being said. Our speech should make people want more. And we should respond to people individually. It's not like we have one canned response that once somebody says something spiritual, okay, here comes the truck. No, at the very end of that verse, know how you respond to each person. You respond to this one this way and this one this way. They're all different. Okay, let's jump over. Probably it'll just be a page, the First Thessalonians. We'll see this again. First Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. Again, this is Paul. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Again, you can see the strength here. Boldness amongst opposition. Not as pleasing men, 
You know, he was not seeking approval. He was out to share the truth. Then jump on down to uh, chapter 4. Verses 9 through 12. Now as to the love of brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and attend to your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly towards the outsiders, and not be any need. And so we know that in this situation, the Thessalonians had uh, gotten to the point where many, of, or some of them, we don't know how many, had stopped working because they thought Christ was coming back immediately. It's kind of like if we all knew Christ was coming back Tuesday, well, Wednesday, I think a lot of us would probably not work Tuesday. That was their mindset, and that's why he's telling them to work. But in the process, he talks about how they need to behave properly towards outsiders. He's focusing on them relating to the people around them. He wanted their life to be attractive. He wanted their life to draw people to Christ, not push people from Christ. And so as we look at these, we can see there's two different pictures going on. Um, lastly, I think, yeah, let's go to Titus for one last one. Again, just a page or two over. Titus 2, 7 through 10. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that though, excuse me, I'm having trouble reading here, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. You can see their speech is important. What they're saying, what they're doing, is to be something that draws people to Christ. Example of good deeds beyond reproach. And so as I started thinking about these two uh, different perspectives, it just made me ask the question, why? Why did Paul do it one way and these people do it the other? Well, I think part of it deals with calling and what God had called the, Paul to and what he called the other people to. But I think some of it is just situation. As we think about Paul, he's gone into these cities and he's an outsider. He doesn't belong there. Most of the people in the city know the people of the city. And Paul was known on his own reputation. They know he was not from there. They hadn't seen him grow up. They didn't know his parents. They didn't know exactly what he did. He was an outsider. But all the people that lived in the city had grown up there. They were insiders. They belonged there. Everybody knew each other's parents, they knew each other, they knew what they did for a job, and they fit into those places. And so, uh, let me illustrate it with this idea. Proclaiming the gospel versus conversing the gospel. Now, Paul proclaimed the gospel. He wasn't focused on if people liked what he said. 
He wanted two things. He wanted opportunities, and he wanted to be able to speak boldly into those opportunities. So when Paul came in, he was hoping and looking for an audience. And so he would go to a place where spiritual people gathered and speak truth there. And he knew if he got highly rejected, maybe even kicked out of town, which happened to him, at that point he could either go back into town or go to another town. And we see him doing that time and time and time again. He could always find a new audience to speak to. But the people who lived in town, the insiders, were in a different situation. He wanted them to interact in a different way. He wanted them to have ongoing relational discussions, allowing people to ask questions, to discover truth, and to see it lived out. He knew that if they offended the people they lived around, they would lose their audience. And they're not in a position to go find a new audience. Just as if we shared strongly, aggressively the gospel with our boss and he fired us, that means we have to find a new job. If we do it with our neighbors, we can alienate those relationships. And so this gives us some guidelines, I think, on how we relate to people who don't believe that are around us. But I don't want to stop there. I'd like to give you something a little more practical, some real steps, some real things that you can do to actually move relationships ahead in a way that I think aligns up with these scriptures so that we can stay in this relational context. Now, the context you're thinking about may be different for all of us. For some of you, it may be around the office. For some of you, it may be neighbors. For some, it may be the sports team where you're on or a sports team that your kids are on and you're sitting with parents in the stands. But just to figure out whatever group that is, is up to you. But then take these principles and use them there. I'm trying to apply these as I relate to my, the friends that I've made playing pickleball and in that community. Now, these steps aren't a guarantee. If you do these seven steps, at the end, they're not going to be Christians. There's no guarantee of that. But I am pretty confident that if we don't do these steps, there's the likelihood of us leading them to faith in Christ is much lower. We have to step into the relationships around us and step in with intention. So, let's look at some steps. Uh, for the first step, take little incentives. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 3. saw something in this passage that I never had noticed before, but I think it's a good example of what I'm talking about. Chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, 1 through 9. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the temple, which is called Beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from him. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. 
And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And so, take little initiatives does not mean you need to go out and start healing people. That's not where I'm going with this. But if you take note of what's going on in the passage, Peter and John were going to the temple. They were not going out to find lame people to heal. Their purpose was to get to the temple so that they could teach. But along the way, they saw somebody, and they stopped and engaged with them. So taking little initiatives just means start paying attention to some of the people around you. Think about baristas. Think about the sacker at the grocery store, the person you pick up your dry cleaning from, waitresses, people at the gym. There's a lot of people in our life that we just walk right by. Peter and John didn't walk by this guy. They stopped and interacted. It doesn't have to be a lot. It can just be starting off by saying hi to the person. Now, my first uh, experience with this was a long time ago. It was back when Sherry and I were engaged, and I was living in Stillwater, Oklahoma. To tell you how long ago it was, this was back in the days when to go to the bank, you would actually go into the bank and talk to a teller. Yes, that used to happen for anyone that's under 40. And so back in those days, I did. I'd go into the bank, I'd take my checks, but I started figuring out, I'm going to be intentional here. And there was one teller that was usually on duty, and every time I went in, I would get in her line. And sometimes it might have been a longer line, I might have to wait a little longer. But I kept going to that line. And eventually, uh, I'd get up to the front and would talk, and over the months, she learned, I'm engaged. She learned about Sherry. She learned when our wedding was going to be. Once we were married, Sherry came in, and she was thrilled to meet Sherry. We went out to her house for dinner. And it all started with just, just the intent of, I'm just going to pick one person and try to get to know them. Ask a little question when you see them. It's little things. Little initiatives are the way to start. Second step you could take, is to pray and listen. Now, I'm kind of making the assumption that you're already praying about this some, but when I say pray and listen, I want you to remember this is a significant battle that we're fighting. Ephesians 6.12 is a verse that I was reading in my quiet time this week, and it so fits into this idea. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of witnesses of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are trying to help someone move from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. Satan is not just going to let that happen. This is a spiritual battle. We can't just fight it with our own abilities. We have to be praying. Pray for the people you're around. As you start interacting with these individuals, be it baristas or someone at the gym, some relationships will kind of just click a little easier. Focus on those. Pray about those. Maybe just pray for God to lead you to a person. You know, then John 16 helps us bring some good balance to it. John 16, verse 7 and, uh, yes, 7 and 8. And when he, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
that's something we can be praying. Pray that they will be convicted of their sin or their lack of righteousness or the coming judgment. Pray for the Holy Spirit to be doing His work in their heart. So, first step is take initiatives. Second step is pray. The third step is to serve others. Um, For a long time, one of my favorite verses on this is Titus 3.14. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. Just do something good for somebody. Learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. Serve people. You know, I mentioned some of the people I'm trying to get to know are my neighbors. Uh, My neighbor that lives across the street, I won't share his name just for privacy, uh, I was out in my yard one day, and I noticed that he had a basketball goal, one of those with the big plastic stand, stand that you fill with something, had been dropped off, and it was at the very front of his driveway at the street. And he was trying to drag it up and having no success. I mean, it was, the base was full of sand, weighed a bunch, and he couldn't move it. So I went over and helped him. I didn't reach a sermon. I didn't share a verse. I didn't say in Jesus' name. I just helped him move his basketball goal to where he wanted it. Serving others. It helped move the relationship. It helped me become a little bit safer. And what's interesting is about a month ago, we were moving a couch into our house, getting it out of the van, and he saw me and Sherry and Ann there. And he walked over and said, can I help you move the couch? And I was happy to let him serve me. Because when it becomes mutual, it's even healthier. The trust between us went up. So I served him. I let him serve me. And as we did that, the relationship moved a notch. There's a lot more trust, a lot more care and compassion between us now. And so serving others leads to the big step, conversing the faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Having thus a fond affection for you, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. And so it's not just sharing the gospel, but it's sharing your life, sharing who you are. You know, we've all enjoyed, at least I've enjoyed, the testimonies in the past couple weeks. And the statement I've started thinking about that I think is true, and I want you to hear this, is this idea of we all have a story others need to hear. We all have a story that others need to hear. Now, we don't have to think about it like this formal presentation that they gave up here, but allowing people to see into our life, being open and honest about yourself, who you are, letting people know how you feel about things. Share about how your faith affects your life, how your struggles, things you pray for yourself, things that are hard for you, places God has changed you. Openly and honest, just share who you are. And then with that, take a sincere interest in the other person. Ask questions, uh, then listen. Just as a little twist on this, there's a friend of mine that when he goes to restaurants, when the waitress brings the food, he always stops her before she leaves. And he says, we're about to pray for a meal. Is there anything we can pray for you? And he's gotten into some incredible conversations. 
but it's taking an interest in the person's life, sharing who you are, asking who they are, starting to converse the faith, just throwing in little nuggets. That idea I mentioned earlier of seasoned with salt, short statements that explain and give an identity of who you are. Then fifth step, the next one, is don't do it alone. Um, two verses in John I'd like to share. John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you. Oh, wait, yeah, that you love one another. Uh, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by the love, all men will know that you are my disciples. And so when we and someone else are relating and non-believers see how we relate, they see something different than they experience in their relationship. The level of love and commitment between believers is different than the level of love between people without Christ. You know, in John 17, 20, Christ prays this and he talks about it. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, the Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. The unity between believers is a tool God uses to help the world believe. And so doing this by yourself is not God's plan. He wants us to do it with someone else. And there's also a level of protection that comes into that, that someone else will see what's going on. They'll be able to speak truth in ways that you may not. Okay, now it's going to get meaty. Let the scriptures speak. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So our goal is to get them into the word. A statement a friend of mine uses that I like is, my wife and I like to just sit down and talk about the Bible with friends. Would you all be interested in doing that with us? It's not intimidating. If you use the word Bible study, there's walls that typically go up. But if you've done these other things and built the relationship, it's basically just a book club, except the Bible is the book. And you read it together, and you talk about it together, and you go from there. Hebrews 4.12 is another great verse to bring in here. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we take them into the Word, the Word will do the work for us. It will speak to their hearts and do things in their hearts that would be relationally hard for us to do with them. And so we let God's Word work, just reading it together and discussing it. And our goal is not to teach them all the right doctrine. Once they believe, there's plenty of time for them to learn that. Our goal is to get them to take a fresh look at Jesus. Because I can guarantee you that no matter who they are, if they're in the U.S., they have a picture of Jesus in their head. The question is, is it the right picture? And we just want them to look at the Scriptures and look at who Jesus is and get a right picture of Jesus. And I can almost guarantee 
that if you're doing that with them, they're going to make some statements, and you're going to start having some new pictures of Jesus. Yours will get corrected. Assumptions that you've carried for a long time, as you look at scriptures with them, they see something new, and it's like, oh, I've never seen that. I know that's happened to me as I've gone through scriptures with people. And then lastly, midwife the birth. You know, as I joked earlier, I'm now a grandfather, so midwife is a term that's been floating in and out of my mind a little bit. And a midwife is not something who causes the birth. They don't go in and say, you're having your baby right now, I'm taking care of it. No, they assist the process that's already going on. They allow the process to happen and help along the way. And that's how we should approach it as people are coming to Christ. We can't make them do anything. We can't cause it. But we can sure help along the way. Midwife the birth. So those are the seven steps. I hope that that can be helpful to you. But two last things to do. If you'll see on your bulletin, there's a final. It is now time for the final exam. You can use your phones. Uh, you can use your neighbors if you need to. But the final is I want you to write down a couple names of people who don't believe that you might start some of these steps with. So take a second. We are going to do this. <laughs> no getting out of it. Take a second. Write down a couple names. If you can't think of some, think of some groups that you might be able to move into and step into where you could find some people like that. Okay, lastly is the homework. The homework is to take one of these names and one of these steps and try it. See what God will do. I am thoroughly convinced that as we step into some of these relationships, God will use that. No matter how fumbly, bumbly, awkward we may feel or think, God will use those steps in people's lives. So if you have questions about this, if you'd like to talk about it more, please contact me. Um, I'd love to sit and talk with you, help you, cup of coffee, whatever. Don't go through it alone. I'll be happy to go through it with you. So as the worship team's coming up, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us to be your ambassadors, to take the message of Christ to those around us. And we thank you that you have put us in a place where there's people around us that know us, that are watching our lives, and they need to understand why we do the things we do, why we have the joy we have, why we sacrificially love like we do, why we forgive like we do. Father, give us the willingness to come before these people and speak your truth. Father, bring these relationships to a point, a point where we can go to the Scriptures together and Father, in the end, bring him to a point where people come to Christ. Help us to step into this as you lead us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.